0: Zechariah 14, as I sort of expected, and it's not going to, to get all finished in one week, we will cover the first two verses. I did find an interesting note on Zechariah 14, and that Martin Luther, who apparently wrote two commentaries on Zechariah, and he published his first one in 1526, but as he was writing this, he stopped after Zechariah 13 without any explanation. He then wrote a second commentary on Zechariah and this one was written one year after his first commentary on Zechariah. But he still had minimum explanation for Zechariah 14. But he did write this one note for Zechariah 14 and I will quote it here for you. Here, in this chapter, I give up for I am not sure what the prophet is talking about. We hope to bring some clarity to this and we've had 400 years since Martin Luther penned those words. Hopefully we can um, pull out a few more things for here. But there are certainly some things in Zechariah 14 that are puzzling and we don't have to go any further than the first two verses to see them. In verse 1, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst. For I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, and the women ravished. Half of the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. Now, I brought in two other versions to help us with this. The ESV on verse one, behold, a day is coming for the Lord will, for the Lord, I'm sorry, behold, a day is coming for the Lord. When the spoil taken from you will be divided in your midst. So that means while they are there, they're going to watch the enemies split up all the spoil that they took. The New Living Translation translates the first two verses this way. Watch, for the day of the Lord is coming, when your possessions will be plundered right in front of you. I will gather all the nations to fight against Jerusalem. The city will be taken, the houses looted and the woman raped. Half the population will be taken into captivity and the rest will be left among the ruins of the city. Well, it would be very interesting to see this this come about with only half of the city taken. What this tells us is that the enemy feels very comfortable to just divide the spoil right there in the presence of, of the remaining Israelites and the remaining people in the city. This is something that is not usually done until the end of a campaign, at the end of the battle. Then you divide up the spoil. But these folks are stopping halfway through the battle and dividing up the spoil. Now up till now, God has been promising a lot of blessings, a lot of protection through Zechariah's prophecies. So why is the city now given to destruction? This would seem to be a very puzzling thing. Now what we must remember is what brought Israel to this point. This chapter is very much talking about the very end of the Jewish age and before the beginning of the millennial reign. this This seems to point very much to the Battle of Armageddon mostly because there is nothing else in recorded history that will match this. There is no place in recorded history where they came through, conquered half of the city and then God came in and delivered them after that. We'll see some interesting things about that but I have to wait till next week to uh, get into that and we'll see that more as we get into Zechariah but I'll tell you, I saw some very interesting things about Israel and about how they interpreted prophecy. So we must remember what brought Israel to this point. First off, as a nation they turn away from the Lamb of God. Instead of the Lamb of God they offer lambs for sacrifice. This is what they will be doing at the beginning of the tribulation when they set up their new temple they're warned very clearly in Daniel's visions of the terrible results that they if they make a covenant with the Antichrist it's predicted it's told if they would just read the prophecies of Daniel they would have avoided coming into covenant with the Antiochus Epiphanes and therefore would have learned lessons from that and not come into covenant with Antichrist But they didn't learn those lessons. They didn't study these visions out well enough. And so this devastation comes upon them as a result. The reason that they had this come upon them is because of the covenant they made with the wrong shepherd. They made a covenant with the false shepherd instead of the true shepherd. They rejected the true shepherd to take on the Antichrist as the one they wanted to be in covenant with. Now it's God's judgment on them for their disobedience. But as we learn from other prophecies, God may have commissioned the judgment, but those who carry it out usually go too far. But this time, God's not going to wait until it's all over to settle up with them. He's going to settle up right away. Usually, it had been when Babylon came in, they were too zealous. God settled up with them a couple hundred years later. And the same thing with uh, the other ones who came through. Most times, <clears throat> God's people do not feel that they are deserving of judgment. But of course God does. God felt Israel was deserving of judgment. They did not feel they were there. They were deserving of judgment. Now uh, let's read over verse one again. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming and your spoil will be divided in your midst for I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. Well, we can stop there. I will gather all the nations to battle against Jerusalem. Now who's doing the gathering? It is God. This is a word from God. This is not a Jewish interpretation of what God is doing. This is God saying, I will gather all the nations against Israel. So he gathers all the nations against against Israel and they have success in their battle. And half the city will, will be plundered. Probably more of the surrounding area as well. So what are the events leading up to this gathering? That I found extremely interesting and we're going to spend a lot of time on that. We have a lot of scriptures to read through here. Uh, I'm not actually going to read all the ones that I have for you in your outline. You can go back and read some of these on your own if you want to. But the first thing we're going to come to is when the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates in Revelation chapter sixteen and verse two uh, excuse me, Revelation sixteen, verse twelve. Then the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up so that the way of the kings from the east might be prepared. Now, if you're in the news at all, you may have noticed a lot of reports about the Euphrates River drying up and the Euphrates River getting um, smaller than it has been. level is getting lower. These things are, are going on. Verse 13, And I saw three unclean spirits like frogs coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast And out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are spirits of demons. Performing signs which go out to the kings of the earth. And of the whole world. To gather them to the battle of the great day. Of God Almighty. Behold I am coming as a thief. Blessed is he who watches and keeps his garments. Lest he walk naked. And they see his shame. Now look at verse 16. And they gathered him together. To the place called in Hebrew. Armageddon. They are gathered at Armageddon. Now, we're going to show you this here in a little bit. Most time, times we know this is the Battle of Armageddon. Have you ever heard that term? The Battle of Armageddon. The term actually should be a little bit bigger than that. It's not the Battle of Armageddon, and this battle does not take place at Armageddon. This is actually a much bigger campaign. It's more the campaign of Armageddon because there are a number of battles that go on here. Sometimes they picture this. Sometimes I've even pictured this as a battle, and one day it's all over. It does not seem to be that way we got a lot of details here from Zechariah. we got a lot of details when we look at some of the other uh, things that are written. In Joel chapter 3, verse 9, Proclaim this among the nations. Prepare for war. Wake up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am strong. Well, that's an interesting verse to put there. Assemble and come, all you nations, and gather together all around. Cause your mighty ones to go down there, O Lord. So Joel is proclaiming here. He says, look, I want all you guys, I don't care if you think you're weak, I want you to say that you're strong and you're needed in the battle. And I want all of you to gather up and come over here to Armageddon and gather for this battle. So I ask this question, we're not going to answer it right now. What would motivate the nations to come together in Armageddon and battle little Israel? Now the first thing that we think of on this and probably have thought of is that there is so much hate for Israel that they all want to gather up and wipe them out. But before we get done with this, I think you're going to see that is not true. There's a much deeper meaning going on with what happens. In Revelation 18, you can read the whole chapter if you want. I'm not going to take time to read it now because we're reading so many other scriptures, but you can go back there and read 18. That is the Babylon being destroyed. The forces at the city it is possible that the forces that are at the city, the forces that defend the city of Babylon, which is a great city in the end times, in this seven-year period, this is a great city. It could be that all the forces of the city that are there to defend the city are drawn away to the battle over in Israel. And they're brought over to Armageddon, which would leave the city open. And we're told that an army from the north comes down and they're the ones who attack Babylon and destroy it. That could be a lot of different armies because there are a lot of armies that are north of them. But that could be one of the reasons that they decided to... There was something pressing going on and all the forces... Antichrist took all his forces out and some of his forces are in Babylon. He took all those forces out from protecting his capital city, his main city or big city anyway, to bring them on down to come after what was going on here in Israel. Zechariah chapter 5, I'm just going to read this is just a review for you. We already covered this before. Then the angel who talked with me came out and said to me, Lift your eyes now and see what this is that goes forth. So I asked, What is it? He said, It is a basket that is going forth. He also said, This is the resemblance throughout the earth. Here is a lead disc lifted up, and this is a woman sitting inside the basket. Then he said, This is wickedness. And he thrust her down into the basket and threw the lead cover over its mouth. Then I raised my eyes and looked, and there were two women coming with the wind in their wings. For they had wings like the wings of a stork. And they lifted up the basket between the earth and heaven. So I said to the angel who talked with me, where are they carrying the basket? And he said to me, to build a house for it in the land of Shinar, which is ready. The basket will be set there on its base. So we know that evil is going to Babylon. Babylon is going to fall. Babylon is going to be destroyed as will that, that which is evil here. Now, Isaiah 13, actually the entire area 1 through 22 is pertinent, but I'm only going to read a few of the verses here. We're going to start at verse 9. Behold, the day of the Lord comes, cruel with both wrath and fierce anger, to lay the land desolate, and he will destroy its sinners from it. For the stars of heaven and their constellations will not give their light. The sun will be darkened in its going forth and the moon will not cause its light to shine. Where does that sound like it came from? And I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity. I will halt the arrogance of the proud and and will lay low the haughtiness of the terrible. God is coming against all the evil in the world. All the evil is gone. He says, I'm going to punish them all. He is going to gather all of the forces from all over the world to come into this one spot. And he's going to defeat them there. Now, there's a lot more in the other verses. You can keep on reading there, but I'm trying to keep it short on how many, because we're reading a whole lot of passages here. Jeremiah 50. And you can go all the way from 1 to 46 and see all that's going on. We're just going to cover 1 through 3. The word that the Lord spoke against Babylon and against the land of the Chaldeans by Jeremiah the prophet, declare among the nations... Proclaim and set up a standard. Proclaim, do not conceal it. Say, Babylon is taken. Bel is shamed. Maradok is broken in pieces. Her idols are humiliated. Her images are broken in pieces. For out of the north, a nation comes against her, which shall make her land desolate. And no one shall dwell therein. They shall move, they shall depart, both man and beast. We know in the millennial reign, Babylon will not be inhabited. It will not be repaired. It will be left desolate so that everyone who walks by it can say, what is this? And then they can be told, this is the city of Babylon. They can be told about the rebellion against God and how it failed. It was to serve as a reminder so it would stay there all those days. That prophecy has not been fulfilled and won't be until the end. Now, Revelation 16 and verse 16 says, and they gathered them together to the place called in Hebrew Armageddon. So we see it again they're being gathered to this place. So Armageddon is where they are being gathered. Now I'm wondering. This is just a question I ask as I'm reading through this. We know that in Zechariah 13. It talked about a great repentance. That the people of Israel had. That they turned themselves to Messiah. And they received him as their shepherd. They received him as the lamb. The sacrifice. Is it possible. That the gathering of all these nations. In the area of Armageddon. Is what caused them to come to a place of repentance. Because chapter 13 comes right before chapter 14. Is it possible that that's what did it? I I sort of think that this is probably what caused them to all of a sudden, you know what, we gotta change our ways. We got all these people that are coming against us. We've gone in the wrong direction. We need to repent. And that repentance is what gave God the opportunity to step in and to, uh, to help them. We'll have to wait till we see it all unfold but that's just something that I ask and I wonder about. Now, we all know that Jesus will return. How many can say the place that Jesus returns to? We know this, of course, from Matthew. The angels came on down and it said in the same way that Jesus ascended, he would descend. Except there is one issue that we have with this. If Jesus' return is to come on Mount uh, Moriah, the, um, let, me, let me read some other verses of Scripture here. Isaiah 34, verses 1 through 7. Come in near you nations to hear, and heed you people. Let the earth hear and all that is in it, the world and all the things that come forth from it. For the indignation of the Lord is against all nations. It's against all, not some, all of them. Every single nation. That means the United States, we're there. We're in that all. Britain, Russia, Ukraine, Africa, any of the nations of Africa, any of the nations of South America, any nations anywhere in the world, God is against them. And he's going to gather armies from all the nations of the world to come to Armageddon, which tells me that at the end here, there is nobody in league with Israel. So let the earth hear, all that is in it, the world, and all things that come forth from it. For the indignation of the Lord is against all nations, and his fury against all their armies. And he has utterly destroyed them. He has given them over to the slaughter. Also their slain shall be thrown out, their stench shall rise from their corpses, and the mountains shall be melted with their blood. All the host of heaven shall be dissolved, and the heaven shall be rolled up like a scroll. Where did you ever hear that verse before? You hear a lot of revelation in these uh, prophecies. All their hosts shall fall down as a leaf falls from the vine and as the fruit falling from a fig tree. For my sword shall be bathed in heaven. Indeed, it shall come down on where? For my sword shall be bathed in heaven. Indeed, it shall come down on Edom. Now, isn't that interesting? This is where all the nations are gathered. All the armies are gathered. And he's coming down with his sword. And he comes down where? On Edom. Now, that is not the Mount of Olives. Verse 6. The sword of the Lord is filled with blood. It is made overflowing with fatness, with the blood of lambs and goats, with the fat of kidneys of rams. For the Lord has a sacrifice at Basra. Anybody know where Basra is? Basra, the first reference we see to it is of one of the kings of Edom. And then later on, we see it as a reference to Moab. So it may be their borders changed in some of their wars. But it's down in that southern, that area south of the Dead Sea. And a great slaughter in the land of Edom. This is what we're talking about first is a slaughter in the land of Edom. The wild ox shall come down with them and the young bulls, with their mighty bulls, their land shall be soaked with blood and their dust saturated with fatness. Sounds like the slaughter has already begun. Isaiah 63, 1 through 6. Who is this who comes from Edom, who dyed garments from Basra? This one who is glorious in his apparel, apparel, traveling in the greatness of his strength. I speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Why is your apparel red in your garments, like one who treads in the winepress? I have trodden the winepress alone, and from the peoples no one was with me, for I have trodden them in my anger, and trampled them in my fury. Their blood is sprinkled upon my garments, and I have stained all my robes, for the day of vengeance is in my heart, and the year of my redeemed has come. I looked, but there was no one to help, and I wondered that there was no one to uphold me. Therefore my own arm brought salvation for me, and my own fury it sustained me. I have trodden down the peoples in my anger, made them drunk in my fury, and brought down their strength to the earth. So Isaiah talks about this slaughter starting over here in the land of Edom, and he talks about it in chapter 34, and then later on chapter 63. Now in Joel chapter 3 in verse 2, and we're we'll also read 12 through 13. I will also gather all nations. Well, this is a how many times we see he's gathering all nations, all the nations. I want them all here. And bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Now remember, this all nations. Remember the original question I told you. What would cause all nations to come to this place? There's got to be a cause. And for the longest time, we just kind of sit around here thinking, well, they all just hate Israel. They just want to wipe Israel off the map. That might be true for some of the Arab nations, but I don't think it's true of all nations. I will gather all nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. And I will enter into judgment with them there on account of my people, my heritage Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations. They have also divided up my land. Let the nations be wakened and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come, go down, for the winepress is full, the vats overflow, and for their wickedness is great. And Revelation uses this term of the angels giving the sickle and going out and reaping the harvest. Of the people that are there, and the slaughter that it would that would come up, so Joel talks about this gathering of all nations. They're coming down to the Valley of Jehoshaphat. Now he didn't say Armageddon, did he? Now the Valley of Jehoshaphat may be a new term to you, but it refers to the Kidron Valley, which passes between the Temple Mount of Jerusalem and the Mount of Olives. Mount of Olives. Now in uh, we already read read these, but in Isaiah 34, two through five, we saw. Uh, for the indignation of the Lord is against all nations and his fury against all their armies. And he utterly destroyed them. He has given them over to the slaughter. So we see there is going to be a slaughter here that is talked about. There can only be one slaughter when you bring all nations together. Now I have a map for us to take a look at and, uh, they'll put it up there on the screen for us to see. And I want you to see the overlay of, of what this is all about. So this is the only map I could find on this thing. Apparently not too many people put this map together. This is the valley of Armageddon, or the valley of Megiddo. The area of Armageddon is up here in the north, northern area. Jerusalem is down over in here. So they're gathering the armies up here north of Israel to come down and to attack it from here. Edom is down over this way. The Mount of Olives is down over here by Jerusalem. So that's all in the middle. There is about 180 miles between the top point here in the north and the bottom point here in the south. That is about almost 200 miles of battleground. What, it's, what the, these verses are saying when you combine them is that God, Jesus Christ, is coming down into Edom, starting the slaughter over here of the people. That would seem to include the nations of Edom and Moab, which right now would be, um, I believe, Jordan. I believe it's that, that area. It's down over this way. And then coming up into here to meet the armies that are coming down from the north. This is why it's a, more of a campaign. This is not just a one-day battle. He starts the slaughter out over here. He then meets these guys, not in the Valley of Armageddon. He meets them in the Valley of Jehoshaphat, which is in this area right here, right in the middle. They come down, apparently. They're can. They not defeated up here in the Valley of Armageddon. Otherwise, they never would have made it out to Jerusalem. But according to Zechariah, half of the city is destroyed in the first part of the battle, and they feel so good after that, they start dividing the the spoil halfway through the battle. Before then they go on the next day to finish. In that time, God sees this and he decides now we're going to execute judgment. They executed my judgment in the beginning because of the rebellion of Israel. But now I'm coming back here and this is the end of the tribulation. He's gathered all the nations up over in this spot. They've all come on down here and now he's come down over here. But now he will apparently descend upon the Mount of Olives. And as we get into Zechariah, he'll tell us some more things will happen. And he will defeat them in this area right there. In that valley, the valley of Jezreel is where that, that defeat will come from. So I want you just to see that on a, on a picture. That you could get a visual because it's a whole lot easier when we can see the visual. So this will be going on. So this would have Messiah come to Jerusalem. I'll probably keep that up there. I want you to see this part as well. Some time ago we went over some of the things of Israel. Remember the East Gate? Israel has four gates into the city. Or, I'm sorry, Jerusalem has four gates into the city. Anybody remember what happened to the east gate? Got blocked off. Because the uh, uh, the Arab people, when they took it, did not want Messiah to come. So they blocked off the east gate. So they said, all right, if he's coming into the east gate, we're just going to block it off. And that way he can't make it. He can't come through. If the Lord descends, comes over here into Edom, so he begins to slaughter down in here. Then he comes and descends upon Mount of Olives. And then moves over into Israel. Where's he coming in? He's coming in the east gate. Just like it's predicted. And he don't need to be open or not. He can make it open himself. And he will come on in through the east gate. So that's how that's going to be fulfilled. All right. Now, let's get on to this question. Why do the nations gather? Is it just hatred of the Jews? Or is there another reason that gets all these nations to come together? Because what you have is they're sending their armies. They're sending all the, the stuff they have. That would, I would imagine that their navy is going to be in the sea over there. We're going to see all kinds of firepower that is going to be directed against Israel. Why would you send all those resources? Because you're leaving your own land unprotected. Now, hatred can be a strong motivation. But I don't see that as enough to get them to do this. There has to be something more that is going on in the world That would cause them to say, we need to send all of our armies into this land. Now, right now, just look at the United States. What would cause us to send all of our armies? We have sent in the last 40 years. Let's just look at those the wars from the last 40 years. We have sent people into Vietnam. We have sent people into Korea. We have sent people into Afghanistan. We have sent people into a number of different nations to do battle. Most of those battles, they were trying to make a case as to why it would benefit us. And I know with Vietnam, they did a very lousy job because most people didn't believe that Vietnam was going to impact us whether they became communist or not. I'm not trying to comment on whether it would or not. I'm just trying to say that that was prevailing thought. Most people did not feel that they would. In fact, the vets who came back from Vietnam were not looked upon very highly. Those folks who went to Korea, they seemed to do a little bit better. People saw Korea as maybe a little bit more of a threat. But still, they didn't see this as uh, anything really great. And we did not send everything that we had. We only sent some of what we had. They called Vietnam a police action. They did not call it anything. Uh, we were not in an all-out war. When we went against Japan and Germany, we sent everything we had. And we knew that was a uh, direct assault against our freedom. So that was, that was not hard to sell. We put everything in there. In order for us not just to send a police action. If it's just something that we all, we all hate Israel. We want Israel to go away. We would not send everything that we have. It's, I'm assuming that we're still there. We still have all the firepower that we do. Um, even Russia. Russia doesn't like Israel a whole lot. But I don't see them doing it. Great Britain. I don't see them sending everything that they have. <clears throat> just because we want to wipe out Israel. We want to take them off the map. There has to be another reason. And if there is, I think it's in the Bible. So, is there something in Jerusalem to merit the attention and to be worth a worldwide effort to battle? It would need to be something that has the, that has affected the world's economy, food supply, livelihood, or viewed as some kind of a threat to life, wouldn't you say? If you're going to dedicate all of the resources you have as a country to accomplish this, then we would do that. Now, take a look at some of the movies that we've made. Um, Trying to think of War of the Worlds. I think it was one of them. One, uh They make a movie out of that, and then they, they have all the nations coming against these intruders from outer space. We've got to defeat them, and so all these nations come together. We got all the planes, we got all the navy, we got all the army. Everything is is put out there to try and defeat them, because we see this as a single threat and a great threat and a threat greater than we can do individually. So it motivated them. I think they're onto something. I think those movies are on something. If you're going to get everybody to dedicate all that they have, then there must be a great threat. In Revelation 9, when we have the sixth trumpet, and the angels in the great river Euphrates dries up to prepare for the army to cross over the east, that has the beginning of it. That's the sixth trumpet. The end of Revelation 11 verses 15 through 19, has the seventh trumpet. We're not reading that right now. But that has the seventh trumpet. That is proclaiming God's new kingdom. So we go from the angels drying up the river Euphrates and the army coming over to proclaiming the new kingdom in the book of Revelation. In between, we may find the answer. In between Revelation 9 and Revelation 11, 15, 19, I think we can find the answer as to why all the nations are gathered. Read with me if you would. Revelation 11 verse 1. Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days. Now that's the same time period, but God counts ours as days and He just rounds off everybody else's. Clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before God of the earth. Where did the two olive trees and the two lampstands come from? The book of Zechariah. Remember the two, the olive trees that were, that were there? This is being quoted. In these end times we have two olive trees and two lampstands that are standing before the Lord and that is the two witnesses. For if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. If anyone wants to harm them, anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds out of their mouth and devours their enemies. That means no enemy can be successful against them, right? And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. These have power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. How long are they prophesying? Three and a half years. No rain will fall during that prophecy. What's that time period remind you of? Time period of Elijah. If no rain falls for three days like it happened within the time period of Elijah, what happens to the food supply? It becomes scarce just like it did in the days of Ahab when Elijah was prophesying. So they have power to shut up heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy and they have power over waters to turn them to blood. What happens if water turns to blood? It is no longer useful. Fish die. Bad things happen. If the fish are dying and there's no rain falling on the earth what's happening to the food supply? It's going away. And to strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. Strike where? All the earth. So right now, we have going on in the city of Jerusalem, two people who have the ability to keep rain from falling on your country, the ability to turn your water into blood, the ability to call down fire from heaven. It does not come out of them. It comes down from heaven. So it don't matter where you are. If you want to be over in Great Britain and wish to do them harm and try to do them harm, fire will come down from out of heaven and devour you. Right where you're at. If you're in Russia and you decide we need to get rid of these guys and you try, fire will come down from heaven and devour you. In fact, it even says it must happen. And plagues. Now look at some of the plagues that Moses did. They ravished the country. Plagues of locusts, plagues of frogs. Plagues of the death of the firstborn. Plagues of hail. Plagues of bugs that uh, just caused irritation all over the place. All these plagues would come. And if they're sending these plagues, where are these plagues, where are these things coming from? Well, those two over in Jerusalem were the ones who called for it. They said this plague will come upon, and they name whatever country, or they name whatever region of the world. This plague is going to come over the, uh, na- the areas of uh, North America, South America, the nations of Africa. The nations of Asia. This is what's going to come. And it does. And they say, as soon as these guys say it, it hits us. So what happens to all the world? All the world hates these people. All the world sees them as a threat. So all the world is going to say what? We need to stop these guys. We need to end this. Now, any who controls this region has been trying to end them. And he's unsuccessful. He's not getting anywhere about it. Can you imagine some of the meetings that are going on in the U.N.? And Antichrist shows up. What are you doing about those two? Well, we've been trying this and that and it's just not working. Well, you got to try harder. We're running out of food. you got to get rid of those people. And eventually they're going to run out of patience with him getting this done. And so what are they going to do? We're done waiting on you. We are going to gather all the nations. We're coming over to that area because that little plane over there, that can hold us all. We're coming over to that area and we are going to send every bit of firepower we've got at those two because they are killing our nations. Can you see that scenario? I see that scenario a whole lot more than everybody hates Israel. Let's just go and wipe them out. There's got to be a reason. There's got to be a motivation. But we're not done. And when they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom in Egypt, where our Lord was, was crucified. Then those from the peoples, tribes, tongues and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put into graves. And all those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry and send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented them or those who dwell on the earth. So all the earth is angry with them. If all the earth is angry and all the earth is rejoicing that they are dead, can you see there would be a political environment for each nation to send everything they had together? Verse 11. Now after the three and a half days, the breath of life from God entered them and they stood on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Three and a half years, three and one half years, They ministered as a testimony to God and wreaked havoc with the world. Three and a half days they lie dead. And great fear fell on those who saw them because they're going to see them. The TV cameras are going to be on CNN. If they're still around, they're going to have their cameras. Whatever news stations are out there, they're going to have their news cameras on it. It's going to have 24-hour coverage just like they do right now. When there's a hurricane going on, what do they have? 24-hour coverage. You get to see it all the time. They're going to have 24-hour coverage on this. Cameras are going to be on this all the time. They're going to say, look at those two. They're dead bodies over there. They've been tormenting us. We haven't had rain. We haven't had this. Fire has been coming out and burning people up. Now they're dead. Oh, how good this is. Now they are dead. They're going to be glad. They're going to be overjoyed. And then as the cameras are on them and they're all talking about how much victory they have, all of a sudden they're going to stand up on their feet. And people are going to see them stand up on their feet and they're going to be greatly afraid. And they heard a loud voice from from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they ascended to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies saw them. In the same hour there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. In the earthquake seven thousand people were killed, and the rest were afraid and gave glory to the God of heaven. Now if the armies gathered to come against these witnesses, since all the other efforts to kill these people had failed, and then all of a sudden, these two witnesses are dead. And we've gathered all the nations in Armageddon. And now they're dead. Do you think the army would just stop? Do you think they would just say, well, we just, I guess we all just go home now. They could be thinking some things. They might be thinking, well, they were raised once. What if they're raised again? What if they come back again? That could happen. What if some other Jews took their place? Because it's very evident they were Jewish people. And they were speaking for the Jewish God. What if other Jews come and take their place? What are we going to do then? They might see the only way to stop them is to destroy Jerusalem and Israel. And they may continue on with their plan to wipe out Israel. Because of what these two witnesses have done. So this is my question I asked after the, i was done all this study. Are the two witnesses not just testifying of the Lord, but also bait for his enemies? Has God all this time, these three and a half years, these witnesses have been down here on the earth testifying of him? Has he been saying, all right, I want you to testify of me, but the main thing is your bait, because people are going to want to come after you. And when they come after you, we're going to have them all in one spot. Now, God doesn't need them all in one spot to get them. But I think he wants them all in one spot so I can say, I want all of your might to come against me and I will show you who's stronger. I'm not going to defeat you all individually. I'm going to defeat you you all collectively so that you can see that all of your strength together will not stop Jehovah. So he gathers them all together. Now, I don't know if that's the plan. But I sure can see that as unfolded. These two witnesses in Revelation. They may not have had a great number of converts. It seems like they made more people mad than anything else. So they may not have had a whole lot of converts. But they still accomplished a great purpose. They demonstrated divine opposition to the Antichrist and his power. The whole time they were going on, they showed that Antichrist does not have power greater than ours. They caused all the world to be mindful of Jehovah and the people of Jehovah. They gave a choice to serve a God who would and could deliver his people versus a false God. If people would have looked to the Bible they would have seen God's greatness even in the two witnesses death. Instead the world rejoiced. They didn't see the greatness of God and They rejoiced. The power of God worked through them and made it worthwhile for the nations of the world to gather their forces against Jerusalem. As we said, God could have, <clears throat> God could have defeated them if they had stayed home. But He wanted them to all come into the same place. That was what He desired. I want to defeat you all together. I'm going to give you the best chance that you have And then I'm just going to slaughter you and defeat you. Now sometimes for ourselves, our sights for our own purpose can be drawn to what seems obvious. It seemed obvious to us that the purpose of the two witnesses was to be a testimony of Jehovah to bring people to a place of repentance. To bring people to come to Jehovah. To see the power of God. That would be the obvious spot. And if that purpose isn't fulfilled, we can feel like a failure we may look at our own life and we may see an obvious purpose to it. Well, obviously I'm here to do this. And if we don't see that purpose fulfilled, we can feel like a failure. But what if there is something hidden that we didn't immediately or even ever know? Are we a failure in God's eyes because we are a failure in our own? Let me read off a couple examples for you. Jesus had a dangerous boat ride across the Sea of Galilee. And it would seem like it was a failure but that one or two men were delivered from demon spirits. And then he left because they asked him to go, basically, kicked him out. But those two that he converted preached to the entire region. And they heard their testimonies and couldn't deny the power of God that had worked through them. Paul's campaign into Macedonia, where the first stop in Philippi would have seemed like a failure. But a church started there. Paul even sent a letter to them. They had enough of a church going on that Paul even sent a letter to them. Well, we may look at that and say, well, he ministered to a little woman's prayer group and got beat and put in prison. Nothing great happened. John the Baptist, as he was facing death, questioned his whole ministry. Even sending messengers to Jesus asking if he was the one because he was beginning to doubt his entire purpose. It seemed like the obvious purpose that he had was a failure to him. But Je- Jesus didn't talk about John as a failure. He talked about John as a great success and said even no greater prophet than John has there been. What about the John the apostle? He's isolated on an island away from his church. What was there for him to do? His purpose seemed to be done. But we are ministered to more from those latter years of this man's life than on all those of his earlier years. He was the last one to write a gospel. I don't know if you ever noticed this discrepancy, but there are times that the other three gospels talk about Lazarus and his being raised from the dead, and they don't use the names or the places. It's only John that does. If you ever wondered about that, I wondered about it myself and began to look at some things. Turns out John's gospel was the last one written. The other ones were written earlier. If they had written those things and identified these people, they would have put their lives at risk. But by the time John wrote about it, the risk was over. So he could write the names, the places, and the events as they happened. Now, the enemy will always be be able to call us into questioning our value for life, our value in ministry, and if we really attained our purpose. But do what the Lord has set before you. Follow the passions He gave you, not those of your flesh. Follow the passions that the Spirit of God has put on the inside of you. And know that God has a way of putting you where you need to be and using you for His purpose when we follow His will and do what His commands. Because what is obvious to us that God has put us here for obviously to do this may have a completely different meaning. Just like with the two witnesses. We focus so much on the witness they had of Jesus. But I'm just wondering, is the whole reason they're here to be baked? To bring all the world together? Because why else does all the world come to this little place to wipe it out? I can't figure out any other reason they would come. Don't sell yourself short. And don't feel you may even know all the purpose for why you're here. I've heard the testimonies that people saying different meetings they had. And the person who led the meeting, I didn't even think I was going to go there and do that. And turns out out of that meeting came one of the great evangelists. One of the great revivalists came out of that meeting. They got saved in that meeting, turned their whole life around, and went in a direction, and and many people got saved. What if you didn't have that meeting? What if your entire purpose that you had for life was not all the things that you went after but was that one meeting that you were to target. What if that was it? Don't lose your purpose. Do what God has set before you and understand that you may never know all the purpose that God has for the little tiny thing that it looks like you're doing. But it is the purpose of the devil to make what you're doing seem small, insignificant and of no value. But God It's the one who brings all the value to it. Father, we thank you for your word. I thank you that no matter what it is that you've called us to do in life, there is a reason and there is a purpose. And we fit into your plan and you have us here to accomplish something. And I thank you that you will lead us along the way to accomplish those things even though we may not know exactly what it is. We may think it's one thing over here, but we were actually accomplishing something different. But if we follow after you and do what you say to do, we will accomplish your purpose. I thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.